Well, after a long break, 10 weeks, we are now, actually more than that because of the summertime, it's, it's been many, many, many weeks. It's been a lot of weeks, three or four months. <laughs> after a long break, we're finally back in this wonderful gospel. Where are we in the gospel of John? Well, so far in this gospel, Jesus has taught the masses He has cast out demons, he has healed the sick, he has raised the dead, he's offended many, and he is claimed to be the divine son of God. His public ministry is now officially over. Uh, We spent many, many weeks in John chapter 13 to 16. This is often called the upper room discourse or the the farewell discourse. And that's because Christ is saying farewell to his disciples before he goes to the cross. But before he goes to the cross and after that farewell, he pauses and he prays to his Father. And John 17 contains that wonderful prayer where Christ is praying to his own Father before he goes to the cross. Now, before we look at this prayer, let's pause ourselves and pray once again and ask for God's blessing. Father, we are so thankful this morning for giving us so many reasons to sing. Father, thank you for the Christmas season. Thank you for reminding us of the incarnation. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, suffering, and dying and rising from the grave. And Spirit of God, thank you for promising to be with us this morning in light of Christ's death and resurrection. Father, we pray that now you would manifest your presence through the Holy Spirit as the word is preached. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen. John 17 is one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible. This chapter has been called the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Scripture, Speaking of John 17, Philip Melanchthon, a towering intellect of the Reformation, said this, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. As he lay on his deathbed, the great Scottish reformer John Knox had John 17 read to him over and over and over again as he was contemplating meeting his Savior in just a few days. Uh, Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, Thomas Manton, preached 45 sermons on John 17. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 47 sermons. I'm only going to preach 53 sermons. Okay, I get it, Dave. People like this prayer. But why? Why is this chapter, why is this prayer so beloved by so many. We'll consider these facts. This prayer is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son, and we have the privilege of listening in. Imagine being able to listen in on a conversation between the king and queen of England, or listening in on a conversation between our president and the director of the CIA. Furthermore, this prayer beautifully reveals the Son's extravagant love for sinners. In addition, this prayer reminds us that God will preserve his own until the end. And if you want to know how to pray for yourself and for others, this prayer is a wonderful model for how we are to pray for ourselves and for others and for the glory of God. Now, the prayer of chapter 17 can be divided into three sections. So this morning, we'll look at verses 1 to 5, where Christ prays for himself. Then next week, we'll look at 
verses 16 to 19, where Christ prays for his disciples. And then finally, we'll look at verses 20 to 26, where Christ prays for his church. Again, this morning, we'll focus on the first section, where Christ prays for himself. Well, what does Christ pray for himself? And Christ prays that he would glorify his Father. And this should be our constant prayer as well. Our constant prayer should be, God, help me to honor you and glorify you in all that I do. Now, to help us understand Christ's prayer, we'll look at it under three headings. We see a prayer for glory, verse 1. We see a plan for glory, verses 2 to 4. And then we see a prospect of glory, verse 5. So first of all is this prayer for glory. Look with me at John 17, verse 1. John writes, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, Jesus prays to be glorified so that the Father would be glorified in him. Now, this raises a few important questions. The first question is, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, as I've mentioned many, many times in here, the glory of God is the shining forth or the display of all of God's glorious attributes, his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his patience, his power, his eternality, his infinity, all that is the glory of God as it shines forth from him. And Jesus is praying that he would glorify himself so that his Father would be glorified. Well, Dave, isn't it selfish for Christ to pray that he would be glorified? No, because he wants his Father to be glorified as he glorifies the Father, as he puts the Father's attributes on display. Well, how is it that when the Son is glorified, the Father is also glorified? It's because, as many of you know, uh, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit exist as a triune God. As Christians, we are Trinitarian monotheists. So when the Son is glorified, the Father is also glorified because they are the same substance or essence. We believe that God exists as three distinct persons in one God. So when the Son is glorified, He knows the Father will also be glorified. And we see this very, very clearly in other parts of Scripture. How about Hebrews 1.3? The author of Hebrews says this, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the Father, that's the context there, and the exact imprint of his nature. Then John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He, that is Christ, has made him, that is the Father, known. And then, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the apostle Paul says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God the Father in the very face of Christ. That is, in his person and his work. So when Jesus is glorified, God the Father is glorified. Therefore, Jesus prays, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. Now, this raises all kinds of 
implications for us. And the first one is simply this. Jesus has a burning, undivided, single-minded, unquenchable passion to glorify his Father. And do you share that passion? The very reason you exist, the reason that you're breathing right now and your heart is beating is because God wants to receive glory in and through you. He created you to display his glory for all the earth. Therefore, glorifying God should be our top priority and our chief passion. Is your chief passion bringing glory, honor, and fame to the triune God? Or is your chief passion making more money, having the right body, retiring early, having political freedom, having perfect kids, taking longer vacations, playing more golf, playing more tennis, watching more football? What is your chief passion in life? By God's grace, you have purpose in life. Aren't you glad? So many folks around us that don't know God have no purpose in life. If there is no God, life is utterly meaningless. But God has given you a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify Him. And here's the incredibly good news. You will be the most satisfied, the most fulfilled, the happiest when you are seeking the glory of God. John Piper calls this concept Christian hedonism, and he argues that if you really, really want to be happy, a hedonist, if you want pleasure, then you should pursue the glory of God because the more you glorify God in your life, the happier you will be. And if you and I really believe that, if we really believed deep down inside that we're going to experience the most joy and satisfaction and delight and pleasure in glorifying God the Father, we'll spend a lot less time wasting time We'll spend a lot more time pursuing God, pursuing our relationship with God so that we can glorify Him. Every single detail of your life has potential to glorify God or dishonor God. Which will it be? We must strive to glorify God in everything our spending, our driving. Our media choices, our parenting, our marriages, our hobbies, our clothing choices, our napping. We must strive to glorify God in every area of life. When we are healthy, when we are sick, when we are prosperous, and when we are laid low, we must seek to glorify God by the power of God's Spirit. God is most glorified in us when we treasure Christ above all things. Because then a lost and dying world sees that Christ is incredibly valuable to you. And if he's valuable to you, he must be worth something. So Jesus prays to be glorified because he has a passion for his Father to be glorified. And that should be our passion as well. But what is Christ's specific plan to glorify the Father? This brings us to the next part of his prayer. So first we see a prayer for glory, and second, there is a plan for glory. A prayer for glory, and now a plan for glory. What is Christ's specific plan to glorify the Father? 
Well, he describes this multifaceted plan in verses 2 to 4 of John 17. Let's look at each facet in detail. For starters, Christ plans to glorify his Father through the cross. Look with me again at John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has finally come for the Son to be glorified. It's the hour that was promised in the Garden of Eden way back in Genesis 3.15. It's the hour that Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Ruth and Esther and Jeremiah and every other Old Testament saint longed for. It's the hour that Jesus mentions at the wedding feast in Cana in John chapter 2. Remember that story where he turns water into wine? But then he says to his mother, Mother, my hour has not yet come. It's the hour that will put in motion the salvation of the entire cosmos. Well, what is this hour that John's referring to in 17.1? It's the hour of the cross. The cross is not only the event that reconciles God and man, defeats the power of sin and darkness, and allows billions of souls to be adopted by God. It is also the event where God is most glorified. How? The cross is the greatest display of all of God's attributes simultaneously. In the cross of Christ, we see both his justice, his righteousness, his wrath, and his patience, his love, and his mercy. It's a harmony of all the divine attributes in one place. Therefore, it's the place on planet Earth where God is the most glorified. It's the hour where God reveals his glory in the starkest possible way. And we see his love and his justice and all of his attributes coming together sweetly and kissing in the cross. Now, we see God's glory all around us. A week and a half ago, I was over on the west side for Thanksgiving, and as we were driving home uh, late Friday afternoon, we were driving down Highway 167 at about dusk. I looked off to my right, and Mount Rainier was right there, about 35 or 40 miles away. It was a beautiful, clear day, Uh, and the sun was setting and casting this incredible kind of purplish, bluish haze on Mount Rainier. It was so close, I almost felt like I could reach out and touch it. It was a spectacular sight. 14,000 feet of snow-peaked mountain right there in front of me. It was the artwork of Yahweh right there, revealing his glory, his power, and his splendor. We see God's glory all over the place. We see God's glory in the engineering of a dragonfly, or a cheetah, or a peregrine falcon? Or how about the amount of information stored in human DNA? Or the fine-tuning of the universe that makes life possible on planet Earth? Or the unbelievably massive size of the universe? 200 billion galaxies and counting. The universe is massive. God's glory is everywhere. But none of those places I just described are the fullest manifestation of God's glory. God's glory is seen 
the most clearly in the cross. Because again, there we see multiple attributes coming together and shining forth as Jesus Christ is hanging there for sinners, suspended between heaven and hell, displaying his love and his mercy and his grace and his justice. We see the full array of the Father's divine attributes. And if the cross is the place where Christ is most glorified, then you and I can never, ever exhaust its riches. Which is why the Apostle Paul said that his only boast was in the cross of Christ, Galatians 6. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, he says that he preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. I hope and pray that like the Apostle Paul, you and I never, ever grow comfortable or familiar with the cross of Christ. I read a story several years ago about someone who worked at the Grand Canyon. This person worked there all summer long in the tourist center. And initially, they were overwhelmed and amazed by the sheer scope and size of the Grand Canyon. But after working there for weeks and weeks and weeks and then months, they're no longer amazed. But every day, tourists would pull up, step out of their car, and gaze upon the grandeur of the Grand Canyon for the first time. And their jaws would hit the ground and many of them would cry. It was so spectacular, so massive, so stunning, so beautiful. Yet the workers were no longer amazed because they saw it every day. I wonder how many of us are like the workers of the Grand Canyon. We're so familiar with the cross of Christ that we're no longer stunned and amazed. But when we stop and think about what's happening there, you and I should be overwhelmed and amazed and totally floored for all eternity because there the Son of God suffered and died for you, a mere creature who lives maybe 80 or 90 years. And Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who spoke all things into existence out of nothing. And he suffered and died for you, rebel like me, his enemy, because he wanted relationship with you. But we're so familiar with that amazing truth, we're no longer amazed and overwhelmed by God's grace. So what do we do? We study and we pray. And we study and we pray. And we say, God, please send your spirit to help me once again be overwhelmed and amazed by your goodness revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, the bookstore is full of books on the cross. Make it your chief passion to study this subject and pray, God, as I study the cross, help me understand what actually transpired here. That's a great use of your time, and it will help you grow in your passion for the Savior. Christ plans to glorify his Father through the cross, but that's not all. He also plans to glorify his Father through his gift. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus prays, Father, 
You've given me authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. What does this mean? Jesus gives the gift of eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to him. So how does this glorify the Father? The Father gives souls to Jesus so that Jesus could give them the gift of eternal life, which raises the question, what is eternal life? Verse 3 tells us eternal life is knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom God the Father has sent. So what makes heaven so amazing? What makes eternal life so fantastic? Is it being with friends and loved ones, dwelling in glorified bodies, eating amazing foods, playing that perfect round of golf, sitting on that amazing beach, or writing that mesmerizing piano concerto? No, none of those things. What makes heaven so amazing is you get to be in the very presence of the triune God. Relationship with God is the chief source of joy and delight in life. And you can experience that right now as you bow the knee to King Jesus, admit your need of his saving grace. And when you do that, you will enter into eternal life with the triune God, relationship with the triune God, which raises the question, do you have eternal life? Eternal life is not merely knowing specific facts about God. It is knowing God himself. In other words, it's not enough to believe in Jesus Christ. Do you actually know the triune God? Do you hear Christ's voice in the scriptures? Do you commune with the Father in prayer? Do you experience the Holy Spirit's tender promptings? Do you have eternal life? Do you know God? When I was in junior high, my hero was Steve Largent. Number 80. A true Seahawk fan right here. Number 80. Who else knew that? Okay, th good. When, when he retired, he was the all-time leading receiver in the NFL, and he was a little 5'10 slow guy from Oklahoma. I had his poster on my wall. I knew all the facts about Steve Largent. I knew his 40 time, his favorite routes, his height, his weight, his college days. I knew where he was from. I knew that he played for the Seahawks. I even wrote him a letter, and he even wrote me back. Although it was a very standard, you know, thanks for being my fan, blah, 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 with a fake signature. I still have that card somewhere. I knew all the data all the facts about Steve Largent. But did I actually know Steve Largent? Unfortunately, no. We never actually met. In a similar sense, kids, listen. You can know all the facts about being a Christian. You can know all the facts about Jesus. That doesn't mean that you know him. Eternal life is knowing the triune God. Do you actually know him? And you know him after you make a decision to turn away from your sins and trust him. And he comes to dwell inside of you and commune with you. Being a Christian is more than knowing facts about a person. Eternal life is actually experiencing that relationship with God. Well, how do we get eternal life? Jesus 
alludes to that in verse 2. He says this, 17.2, since you have given him authority over all flesh, he's speaking about himself here, uh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Christ glorifies the Father by giving us, that's the key word, giving us eternal life free of charge. And that's the scandal of the Christian message. There is nothing you can do to earn this incredible privilege and blessing. It can't be earned through devotion. It can't be earned through good works. It can't be earned by avoiding bad works. Eternal life is simply received freely by grace with the arms of faith. But you must admit that you're a sinner, you must turn away from those sins, and you must cast yourself entirely on the mercy of King Jesus. And when you do, you will experience eternal life right now. Christ plans to glorify his Father through the cross. He plans to glorify his Father through his gift. But there's more. He also plans to glorify his Father through his accomplishment. Look with me at verse 4. Jesus says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, he's speaking prophetically in verse 4. He says he's already accomplished or he's already accomplished much for his Father in his earthly existence, yet his greatest accomplishment is still to come. His greatest accomplishment, obviously, uh, is the cross and the resurrection. But he's so sure it's going to happen that he's speaking about it in the past tense, which he does often in the Gospels. Christ's greatest accomplishment, for sure, is what happened on the cross. In just a few hours, Christ would hang on the cross and he would cry out with a loud voice, John 19, 30, it is finished. Well, what was finished? His work of securing the salvation of literally billions of people. And on that cross, Jesus died for every single one of those people that his Father would give him. Not one of them would be lost, not one of them would ever go to hell, and not one of them would ever experience the wrath of God. The Father planned salvation, the Son came and died for all those the Father chose, and the Spirit of God would apply that salvation eventually. It was certain. On the cross, Jesus accomplished exactly what his Father had planned. He carried it out perfectly. Mission accomplished. Notice on the cross, Jesus did not say, I started the work, now you Christian need to go and finish it. He said, it is finished. It's finished. He accomplished everything to save us. This means that there is nothing left for us to do but believe and receive. Well, Pastor, I already know that. I've been here for a while. I understand that. Okay, let me ask you a few questions. Why do you read your Bible and pray? Is it to earn favor with God or to enjoy fellowship with God? Why do you attend church and small group and serve on Sunday mornings? Is it to earn favor with God, to check a box, or is it motivated by gratitude and love for Christ? Why do you obey? Is it a sense of duty or dread? 
Or is it because you are so in love with the Savior, you'll do whatever he says? Or how'd you respond this week when you committed that same sin the 37th time? Did you wallow in self-pity and condemnation? Or did you cast yourself on Christ's eternal mercy, remembering that he died for every single one of your sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins? All those sins were forgiven. Christ accomplished salvation for you. Christ not only prayed to glorify the Father, but he also devised a plan to glorify his Father, and he carried out that plan to perfection, which means that someday he will be glorified, which brings us to the third and final heading. So first, a prayer for glory, second, a plan for glory, and third is a prospect of glory. John 17, 5. John writes these words, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In light of Christ's cross and his resurrection, Jesus very specifically asked God the Father to restore him to his former glory. That is the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Let's examine what Christ means by that incredible statement. He's talking there about his former glory versus his future glory. So again, verse 17, 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, the implications of this last phrase are mind-boggling. And these words are incredibly audacious because Christ is saying that before the world existed, he shared an equal glory with God the Father. Again, another Trinitarian reference here. He's implying that in eternity past, before the world even existed, he dwelled in a perfect triune community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in worth, equal in power, and equal in glory. In other words, Jesus Christ is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. He's equal with God. He's a member of the Trinity. And speaking of this Trinitarian glory, one scholar writes these words. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being in constant movement of overture and acceptance. Each person envelops and circles the others. So we see this glorious picture of this perfect, harmonious, loving community, the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in worth and power and being, one God in three distinct persons. So in eternity past, before the creation of all things, Jesus Christ was far more glorious than he was in the incarnation. So what happened? Well, the incarnation happened. Jesus stepped down, 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 lower and lower to the lowest possible place, he set aside the display of his divine glory 
to serve us in the incarnation. And the Apostle Paul describes this so well in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. He writes these words, and these are very appropriate for the Christmas season. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The incarnation was the greatest act of humility in the history of the cosmos. No one has stepped down lower than King Jesus because of where he came from. No one. Christ hid his glory in the manger. Then he hid his glory in a toddler's body. Amazing. Then he hid his glory in the poverty of Palestine. Then he hid his glory in a carpenter's workshop. And then he hid his glory ultimately in the cross where he was rejected and beaten and whipped and mocked and murdered for the sins of billions and billions of people. But because Christ humbled himself on the cross, Christ will experience future glory. That's the path. That's the pattern. Humility always comes before glory. Let me continue to read Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, in light of his extravagant humility and servanthood, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, he humbled himself, but someday every single knee in the universe will bow and honor him. Why? Because he went so low. Because he humbled himself. And you and I, my friend, if you're a Christian, will sing his praises for all eternity. Consider these words of Revelation 5. This is a description of heaven someday. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, that is millions and millions and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. If you don't like loud, boisterous singing, you're not going to like heaven very much. And if singing like this sounds boring to you, you probably haven't experienced eternal life. Because eternal life. The joy of eternal life comes from the joy of knowing and worshiping the triune God. 
The path to glory for Christ was the path of the cross. And it's the exact same for us. There's no other way. The cross always comes before the crown, just like it did for Jesus. Because Christ humbled himself, he will be exalted. And when you and I humble ourselves, when we engage in humble, lowly service for our spouse, our neighbors, our children, our siblings, our roommates, when we take up our crosses and do the dishes and change the diapers and vacuum the car and vacuum the living room and make the bed and clean up our towels, when we humbly serve others, Paul promises us in Philippians 2, that just like Christ, we too someday will be exalted, glorifying God the Father. That's the Christian life. <laughs> That's it in a nutshell. The Christian life is summarized, according to John Calvin, as cross-bearing. As you bear your cross by the power of the Holy Spirit, motivated by grace, someday you will be honored and glorified, just like Christ was. In John 17, one to five, we see a prayer for glory, a plan for glory, and a prospect of glory. And this prayer was recorded for us to encourage us and also as an exemplary prayer for us. This means that we too must pray like Christ, that God would be glorified in our lives. And we too must pray that God would help us develop a plan to glorify Him through cross-bearing and suffering. And we too must never forget that just like Christ, when we humble ourselves and serve others around us, we too will be glorified. Let's pray together.